it's been six, six full days and nights. Since we started the retreat, there's that perception can arise. Yet myriads, myriads of experiences, sensations, moods, whole kaleidoscope of experience arises and ceases in this mind. Denise and I have been very uh, touched by the efforts that everyone is making. This is challenging work. And I have a deep sense that uh, though we might not always be in touch with it, that we are, that uh, what we're doing is a, a great blessing for the world. Sometimes meditators are compared to trees. <laughs> and you just see trees sitting there. Some people see a tree sitting there and then see dollar signs and think. And you know, there's a place for lumber and houses and all that's really good. Just see, you know, how much I can get out of that tree. It's just sitting there, it's a bit of a waste. Yet as we're beginning to realize these trees that are just standing there are our lungs. They're breathing in the CO2 and breathing out the oxygen, helping to purify. The air that we breathe And in meditation, there's something similar happens. We, we stop, we have enough trust to surrender ourselves or to consciously walk into a temple, into a limited, a limitation, a limitation dedicated for the exploration of freedom, for the understanding of bondage. It's what religio, yoga, as words mean consciously put ourselves in the situation, working with silence, standing, sitting, walking, lying down, cultivating relationship with body, breathing, relationship with sensation, pleasure, pain, neutral feelings, relationship with thought, to see the different kinds of thoughts, learning that we can even train our thoughts to help direct attention back to this moment. Cultivate a relationship with mood. Notice how we can get totally stuck into it or how we can get perspective on it. We can let it be, be patient, 
go close, go back. And in this process of relaxing, simplifying, and all kinds of stuff can emerge into the, as we've seen, all kinds of experiences, some peaceful, some ecstatic, some very difficult, heavy, soup-like, painful, crazy, whirlpools of, it's hopeless, I'll never be able to do it, all these different, you could call orphans of consciousness, refugees of the heart, appear. There's the opportunity to bless them with awareness. That's that, like the trees, that's that purifying principle when we, when we touch something that we're unconscious of is very different from something that's touched by presence, clear seeing. Like rage, rage and wanting to hurt someone is very different when we're just unconsciously swept along and by that current than if there's consciousness, ah, the fire, the resentment, the grabbing my body, feeling the fist forming, or even more calculating ways of obliterating the bad guys. Touching that, listening to that, What did Buddha say? He said, I know you, Tamara, the tempter. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, it's called the Hasatan, the doubter, that energy in the universe that confuses us, makes us doubt, misleads us. You don't need to hate that. The Buddha didn't get out a super-duper mantra and cut him in half. <laughs> You're dealing with the the Buddha, buddy. <laughs> he just, I know you. <laughs> Sound familiar? When, when Jesus was, as the story goes in the scriptures, tempted in, in the deserts, offered all kinds of things. You know, he didn't give the Hasatan a karate chop. He said, stand over there. It has its place. There's some energies. You learn to know them, feel them. But we, our wisdom realizes, no, I don't act on that. That hurts me, hurts someone else. And yet in feeling it, feeling our rage, feeling our discouragement, feeling our, and this is endemic in so many of us, feeling the, the inner tyrant, It's always pointing out, you ate too much there. You weren't very mindful. (laughs) Today I was walking out, I had Tanisra's plate, I was walking out of the, uh, where where we eat sometimes, and I, I saw a door that I thought you could push, and I pushed it, and then the whole thing fell off the wall. It's a huge crash. I'm tearing down IMS. flushed of, with uh, embarrassment. 
But then can we touch that? Different moods. All these different moods, when we touch them, they get transformed, purified. That's why they're called the ennobling truths. They're not, okay, you did the Four Noble Truths. Tanisha did, okay, okay, there's some new people. Kitty's all did it again. Could we move on to the higher teachings? <laughs> suffering, cause of suffering, end of suffering, path. Got it. <laughs> no, no, this is not funny. We're talking about my spiritual future. <laughs> they're ennobling. They're mirrors that help us see deeper, 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 deeper into, guess what? We're not going anywhere. We're more and more learning to to be here more deeply, more clearly. Ennobling, because when we can feel into embarrassment, feel into the suffering of the inner tyrant, not very mindful, you're a pig, or all the things we do to ourselves or to others. Learning to develop the capacity We're deepening our capacity to be real, to be human, not to just be swept away by things. We're giving ourselves choices rather than being compulsive. I used to think, oh, God, I'm so, so many shoulds in my mind and shouldn'ts, and I like following rules and things, like this and that, and just feeling all tied up. Oh, I want to be free. So then I had a period of my life where I just wild. I know it's hard to imagine. (laughs) And we think that's free. (laughs) Yeah, we can be free to say things we regret for five years. You know, I used to be a a prison chaplain and uh, uh, visited a young man who was 19. He'd been in prison for six years. He got angry when he was 13. Just got angry and it just swept him and he picked up a, got angry at his friend, it was his friend and it could happen to any of us. He got angry and picked up a stick and hit his friend in the head killed his friend. We think free to do anything we want, but is it freedom or is it being a slave to impulse? Being a slave to being swept? Wisdom, there can be spontaneity, but we can also spontaneously be dumb, spontaneously be reckless. So okay, maybe maybe this practice gets us a bit hung up for a while, but we're deepening capacity, learning to investigate, and then we'll start to get the sense of what to be followed, what not to be followed. The ennobling truth of being willing to be with suffering. The ennobling truth of when we see currents that are always making us have to have this, have to have that, have to get rid of this, being glued to conditions, uh, learning how also how to let go of that compulsive grasping and rejecting. 
third truth, cultivating the capacity to experience the peace of suchness, of how it is. Fourth, ennobling truth, that the, what leads to this ending of suffering is this path of impeccable living, ethical living, grounding, stabling ourself in mindfulness, in composure, using our wisdom and compassion to investigate into the nature of things. This is the path that leads home to our true nature. And the Buddha encouraged us in one of his last uh, teachings uh, in the, what's called the Lotus Sutra. One of his last teachings before he died, he, he said, you know, don't, don't be despairing. You should have no further doubts. He said, let your hearts be filled with joy. You know you will reach Buddhahood. We will reach awakening because it's our nature. We're waking up eventually to our nature. Okay, it takes time, but just being reminded so that we can begin to get a sense of a trust that we're not going somewhere else, that it's more in learning to see clearly what's happening here. We've been investigating suffering and how it comes from this misunderstanding of the stuff of our life these focuses of the grasping mind, what we take to be me, form, our body, feeling, pleasure, pain, neutral, perceptions, our different thoughts, our volitions, our anger, our our, our desire, our discouragement, our anxiety, our moments of knowing that we, we don't understand these. When we don't understand, we take this to be me, the body, feelings, perceptions, moods, tendencies, consciousness itself, we take it to be me. Because why? Because we all want to be happy. We all want to be at ease. And so that's where it seems like we'll find ease, home base, something real. It's natural but it's based on a not clear seeing. Because as we've been investigating, if we take something to be me, a loved one, and then when something happens to the loved one, or the loved one leaves us, and then then we find ourselves suffering. What happened? We take our success to be mine, our money to be mine, and then in the next day it's gone. Or my strength to be mine, and then we find ourselves sick. So as Ajahn Chah says, when we look for certainty in that which is actually uncertain, we're bound to suffer. When we're looking to this this realm of seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting, when that's where we're trying to find our stability, we're bound to suffer. Why? Because as we've been 
reflecting everything is mine. Nah, everything's uncertain. It's this way and then it shifts. It shifts. When we begin to see for ourselves this changing nature and the changing nature by seeing that, then we begin to understand dukkha because something that's changing is not reliable. We can't find stability in it. It's like trying to build a house on shifting sands. We see, begin to really see directly with our meditation by learning to be with breathing and standing and walking and, and being with our moods as they shift and change. And we begin to understand dukkha, and then we begin to understand anatta, that it's not, we take it to be a me. It's a way of talking. But it's not really mine. We start to sense the burning that comes by as we've been looking, you know, trying to move these boulders, lift them up. Arjun Shah says it's like looking at a river and scolding it. Why are you flowing that way? Why don't you flow the other way? Or he even would say it's like looking at a chicken and saying, what are you doing all this cuckle-doodle-doing? Why, why aren't you quacking? Looking at a chicken and wondering why you're not a duck. Looking at conditions and wanting conditions to be other than they are. It's a recipe for suffering. So we start to see that we practice letting go, letting things be. Not rejecting, not trying to shut everything out, but little by little letting things be. In a moment when we are patient with the grasping, patient with the rejecting, sensing that suffering, in a moment of somehow knowing it, letting go, we can begin to experience moments of peace. We've been talking about these changing conditions. The Buddha said there's also an unchanging. He put it like this. He said, uh, these monks, he says, there is an unborn, unoriginated, unmade, uncompounded dimension. Monks, if that not born, not made, not compounded, not originated, didn't exist, there would be no escape from that which is born, become, made, compounded. But because there is an unborn, because there is this unborn, undying dimension, there is an, there is an escape from suffering. What is this un... This is a question. What is this unborn? The first disciple, remember we've been talking about the first noble truth, the four noble truths. When the Buddha finished giving that talk, 
one of his disciples had a breakthrough. And his, what's called his Dharma eye opened. He entered the stream. He tasted Nibbana. He had a sense for this undying, that which is not coming, that which is not going. The skillful mean, what he realized at the end of that talk was everything that comes, goes. Everything that arises, ceases. Sounds really simple. But the, the analogy that helped him, the skillful means that he used when he was later talking about it in, in another famous uh, discourse in the Mahayana tradition called the Sharangama Sutra, this disciple Kandanya talks about that skillful means he used in his meditation. He, he called it the contemplation of the host and the guest. If you have a hotel or an inn, guests are coming through. How do you recognize the guests? They're there for a time, and then they go. They're there for a time, and then they go. The host stays, because that's where the host lives. The host remains. What comes and goes? The sounds of my voice come, go. The morning, having breakfast, touched our consciousness, dissolved and shifted. Different sittings and walkings came and shifted. Sensations now of sitting in the chair or on the cushions, or are they, aren't they moving, vibrating, shifting? They're the guests. What remains? What remains? Whatever you say, whatever you call it, it's another sound, another word that's appearing, but notice when that word ends, there's still presence, listening, what's called Buddha, wakefulness. host and the guest. This is the territory of the third noble truth. Contemplating the coming and going, and especially contemplating ending, things ending. Usually consciousness is polluted, stuck, stuck on objects. Consciousness gets stuck on Sounds for the, the nice ones or the ones that are disturbing us. Get some earplugs. Move our seat. Stuck on feelings. The ones we like, the ones we don't like. We don't like it, then we're busy getting to other ones. We're so caught up in the shifting, changing, moving, trying to find stability in that. Do we ever pause enough to notice what comes and goes and what remains, what's unmoving? What stays? What sees this? Wisdom. Remember the opening night? Panyuttara sabedama. Wisdom overcomes sabedama. All conditions. Wisdom will see through every single condition. 
Vimuti sarasa bedama. Remember, whatever the circumstance, whatever the changing conditions, at the heart of it is, vimuti means space, freedom. The next line, amato gada sabedama. Sabedama, all these dhammas come together in the deathless. That's what amato gada. Where do all the different conditions come together? Again, this is just an analogy, but gives us a sense for it. We live in the mountains. We've been living in the mountains in South Africa for 15 years. And sometimes, even at our hermitage, it can be stressful. We have all kinds of challenges out there, which we'll talk about later. But, you know, there's a lot of violence in the country, a lot of beauty in the country, a lot of poverty in the country, AIDS pandemic, all kinds of challenging situations. Outwardly, inwardly. So occasionally, Tanisha and I need to go for a holiday. So we go down out of the mountains. Our province is very big, and we go down to the coast, to the sea, north of Durban, the beautiful sea, Indian Ocean, big waves, impressive. Tanisha at first was a little timid, but I thought I would, you know, lead the way. Out there. Don't you worry, Tanisra. <laughs> so I go down and then plunge in, and this huge wave just crushed me into the sand. <sighs> I stood up, it had ripped my suit off. I didn't even I didn't even know it. I was contemplating whether my neck had been broken. It took me down a peg or two. I used to be taller than this. <laughs> but I then started to realize, hey, there's some big waves here. Big waves. And you see the big waves, and then you notice, whoa, look at those guys. There's surfers there. And man, look at those surfing those waves. And then you see, oh, but those are the little, the, the myriads of these little glistening in the sunlight waves, and that's a calm, swell wave. And so when our consciousness is, is looking at the surface, we can identify the scary waves, the impressive waves, the calm waves, these waves. Where do all these different things merge? It's just an analogy. But where do they, where do they come together, not apart? They're all water, aren't they? The, the, the waves are part of one ocean, go down into the depths. We're only focusing on the, but you know, if a wave, big wave comes in and sh shatters on the rocks, we don't have to burst into tears. Oh God, it was tragic. <laughs> it was, it was, I can't even say it. It was splattered into a billion. It's too difficult. You know, we think, hey, you know, it's water, it's a wave. So we, we, we know that. What, 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 what. Or, or like trees, we can look at the surface. And here I notice you have these uh, lovely birch trees. They're very beautiful, silvery, elegant. 
But some of us, you know, like the oak trees, they got some really, hmm, those birch trees couldn't handle the big storms and maybe like I can, or the fir trees and this and that. But where do the different, we give them characteristics, but where do they merge in the ground? The waves merging in the depths, trees merging in the ground. What does consciousness do? Notice how it scans who's here, oh, she's here, he's here. Consciousness looks at the forms. We take this is my bit, that's your bit, this is the good stuff, that's the bad stuff. But where, what happens when we notice where does each sound go? Where does each feeling go? It arises and ceases back into this ocean of presence, of listening, of consciousness. When we're so focused outwardly, we don't notice that it's like we're just looking at the surface of the waves or looking at the trees. We start to pause, contemplate host and guest, contemplate mindfulness. Then we start to get a feeling, yes, there's things moving through the mind, but we start to get the feeling for the awareness, for the heart that knows knows stuff that comes in, a sound that comes in, a sound that goes. When we're contemplating third ennobling truth, we're starting to notice how every sound, every thought, every perception dissolves, keeps dissolving back. What remains? Or as, was, as our teacher used to say, a Western teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, every sound, every condition, don't resent it. It's a taxi. Taxi taking you back home to your own awareness. Every sound. So we start noticing the ending of things. The gaps. The gaps between the thoughts. The space, we can look into the room and just notice all the beings who are here. It's, but sometimes we don't, we're, we're too riveted. We don't look around and notice the space that makes all the coming and going possible. We're so focused on the thought, oh, I'm happy. Oh, thank goodness. Then another thought, oh, gosh, I'm miserable. Oh, that's awful. Don't notice the space around thought as it's coming and going in awareness. the nature of conditions to move and be unstable. So if, as Ajahn Chah says, if we let them come and go, not rejecting, not denying, holding lightly, if we let them come and go, if we let go a little, he says, there's a little peace. If we let go a lot, there's a lot of peace. And Chao went on to say, if we let go completely, then there's complete peace. So this conditioned and unconditioned, it makes it sound like there's two things. We can talk about the waves and the depths. 
You talk about where we see separation, uniqueness, and where we see non-dual, where, where everything is not apart. Language makes it seem like they're different, but it's all part of this paradox. There's movement in this dharma, and yet in the midst of the movement there's stillness. Noticing the stillness within the movement, the movement within the stillness. Whatever you say about it, it's not quite it. The Buddha compared this Dharma to a bubble. One of his famous teachings called the Diamond Sutra was all conditioned dharmas. The conditioned dharmas are all these things we take to be me and mine. All conditioned dharmas are like dreams, illusions, bubbles, shadows, like dew drops in a lightning flash. Contemplate them thus. Keywords thus. It's like this, thus. It's like the host, thus. The guests come and go, but the host remains. Like bubbles. A bubble's there. It's beautiful. You might see the colors on it. Oh, it's beautiful. And then pop. Where'd it go? So someone will come and say, it's, it's nothing. It doesn't exist. It isn't. And then whoosh, there's the bubble. Beautiful. And then pop. So which is it? It is. No, it isn't. It is. It isn't. These are what's called the extremes. Language can't capture what's really happening. Language makes it seem like there's a thing. It, it, it is. It isn't. When the conditions are right, bubbles appear. And then when the conditions shift, there's no core. So this undying truth of things, someone that wrote in, in a question, well, what, what is it? What, if we can call it Buddha, nature, that's a bubble, pop. We can call it God, pop. The higher self, pop. Our true, true nature, Pup. Brahma? Pup. It's so important in our contemplation to begin to see the limitation of language. Language is a tool. It's precious. It helps us communicate. But when we start looking to words to tell us who we are, is, isn't, is, isn't. That's why it's so important in our meditation to start noticing all the views we have about ourselves and listen, practice just thinking any old thought and notice it end. Let the thought end and notice the space after where there's still presence, refuge, knowing. Whatever we call ourselves isn't what we are. Our nature is measureless, our true nature. Yes, within that true nature, there's this body and all the challenges and we are patient and work on things. 
But no matter how it is with us, how heavy, light, good or bad we feel, when with wisdom we look into that condition, the essence of that condition is free, and all the apparent different bits and pieces merge in the deathless. And the last line is, Nibbana pariyosana sabedama. All conditions, all things end. Thingness, the sense of separate thingness, ends in nibbana. We're not, there's, we're not split. That's, this is difficult to conceive of. All these so-called things, remember like all conditioned dharmas like dreams, illusions, bubbles, shadows, like dewdrops, dewdrops. An image the Buddha used to help us understand this nature. Again in Africa, when I walk in the morning, used to every morning with our dog. Can't do that now, but I still walk and remember him. But in the morning, thousands of dewdrops sparkling. And sometimes on the hundreds of spider webs in the early morning, early African morning, and then the tiniest, tiniest, I guess, dewdrops, moisture drops on those webs. Wow. Something about consciousness just wants to hold it. We give it a name, jewels. It's amazing. But but what's its nature? As the sun changes, the light changes, the condition changes, then... So, though language makes us think they're things, they're all interwoven with the light, the heat, the sun. You can't really pry anything apart from anything else. Yet we can get so focused on our some flaw, some this, some that, contracted, and we lose touch with our depth, our measurelessness. So we practice remembering the host and the guest. Whatever worries, thoughts we have, hear them, let them come, let them go. Practice letting the sound die. Get a feeling for that depth that's also our home ground that no one can take away. We can forget about it. But it's it's always inviting us back home because it's always here and now. The Buddha taught suffering and the ending of suffering. When we grasp, we can create a lot of anguish and turmoil, grasp and reject. all those years I told you I was really sick and I'd used to have been so strong and I felt guilty. I'd received so much in the monastery that I wanted to give back and serve and then I'm just kind of lying down all the time. Sick, internal bleeding, inflammation, weakness, feeling like, gosh, if I'm a meditator, I should be able to cure this thing. 
And uh, yeah, I was meditating, but and then the monks remembered me when I was strong and used to be the teacher. So you know they would kept asking me every day, "Are, are you feeling better?" And every healer, because the hospitals didn't quite know what to do with me. Then all these different healers. I had about sixty different kinds of therapies, treatments. I can't say they didn't. I mean, I'm alive. But so often my teacher and abbot would come, Ajahn Sumedha, are you feeling better? And I would say, well, I think I'm a little better, and I get better and worse and better and worse. And one day he came up to my room. I was lying down, as usual. And he just said, Kitty Sorrow, I just wanted to apologize to you. I said, well, why? He says, I've been just wanting you. I remember how you were in Thailand, how you were so strong and vital and this and that, and I've just been wanting you to get well, and I realized, gee, I've been putting all this pressure on you. He says, Kitty Sorrow, I give you permission to die. <laughs> he said, I'm not saying I want you to die. He said, but if that's what's going to happen, that's what's going to happen. And the relief. The joy I was still sick, but I had also enough experience with meditation that that just gave me more permission just to just let go. I was trying to shift a rock with will that couldn't be shifted. It was trying to move that boulder. Is it heavy? Yeah, when you try to move it. But when I got permission to just let it be, and if I live or die, it turned out I didn't. But in a way, I think that letting go allowed a healing in its own way to take its own time. When we grasp, we create birth and death and suffering. When we let go, we create, we allow wonderful existence. It's what the great Chinese Master Hua calls it. Grasping, it's birth and death. But when we let go, all the stuff we're working with has a magic to it, even when we're sick. It can be blessings. That sickness gave me all the time in the world to practice dying, to practice letting go and feeling that ground, that place where all things merge. May we all deepen our trust. We've spent eons trying to grab hold of things. Can we give ourselves permission in moments to practice letting sounds die, letting thoughts die, relaxing with the out-breath? Let us get the feeling for resting in our home ground, that which remains, that which is willing to be with all that comes and goes.
since all of us apparently, the myriads of beings, we might think that we're all separate, but actually we're part of this one Dharma realm. We're brothers and sisters in birth and death. And essentially all things, all beings merge in the deathless, the mysterious, true nature that can't be captured in words. So since we all have a kinship, may we finish this day good practice with a gesture of sharing and a letting go, wishing may the blessings from our life emanate above, below, and all around to those dear, dear to us, those associated with us, those we know, those we don't know, those we like, even those we don't like. May the goodness of our lives be shared with all beings without exception. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.